Uh, If you have your Bible, you can go to the New Testament book of James. We are headed to James chapter 2 this morning. As we continue through our series, I've entitled Talk the Talk and Walk the Walk. If you need a Bible, feel free to grab one and keep keep one uh, from our welcome table there in the back. Um, As you have probably noticed, as you come in each Sunday, or maybe this is your first Sunday, hopefully you noticed, we have several flags that are out there along the street, and we have a big tent out here by the door to help make people in our city and community aware that there is a church that is gathering and meeting here and and lifting high the praises of Jesus. We want them to know from that sign that they are invited and and welcome into our fellowship, obviously. Um, As you can imagine, it's hard to make people aware that we are even here. Uh, it is hard to get people's attention as they perhaps drive by on a Sunday morning, and, and the signs are only out there a few hours a week. So we have been talking as a leadership team and thinking through, well, how do we get more attention? How can we maybe uh, do a bigger and a better sign, maybe even a name change uh, in order to really get uh, the community on board, get them in these seats, right? So here's what we've come up with so far. Uh, easy church. We are going to change the name to Easy Church, and our new tagline is going to be Making Faith Easy. Do you like it? Cricket so far. Well, listen, here's some of the things that we're going to include now. What we're talking about doing, 12-minute sermons, okay? Huh? Huh? Anyone? Massage chairs during the service and, and a next button in case you don't like the worship song that we're doing. Just hit that, buddy, and move on to the next one. 36% fewer commandments at Easy Church. We're only going to preach on the happy parts of the Bible and 3% cash back on all tithes and offerings. How about that? You like that? Uh, We've improved our discipleship program by upgrading to the new Leave Your Faith at the Door program. We really think it's gonna take off really well. And then finally, we're gonna work with the, uh, the Good Works app. Heard of the Good Works app? So the Good Works app kind of, it works a little bit like uh, Uber, and basically you, you turn on your Good Works app, and it will, uh, it, it will draw in somebody in the neighborhood who's not busy, and they will immediately drop what they are doing and handle whatever pesky evangelistic or mercy situation you find yourself in. They will take care of it for you so that you can get to the really important things in life, like Netflix, All right? So it's going to be awesome. How many of you think that this sounds good to you? I'm wondering, I'm wondering at what point in my little narrative did you realize that I wasn't serious? Halfway through, first comment. Well, I joke, obviously. But it is worth considering the reality that as Christians, maybe even particularly as American Christians, that this sort of mentality, whether we would identify it as such, can seep into our hearts and lives in a very small way, uh, where our hearts can be pulled away that, that The desire to follow hard after Jesus, the desire to be a part of his gospel mission rather than our plans, the desire to know him daily in his word, uh, to experience conviction over sin, and to live what I'm going to call and what James will call this morning a real and a genuine faith that in our culture today we can be pulled away from those things. James this morning is going to talk about the authentic and genuine life of faith following Christ, that the inevitable result is something that he calls good works. See, the problem that James saw in his church 2,000 years ago is really the same problem that we can see in New City Church this morning and every church around the world that declares Jesus as Savior, that our hearts can be tuned towards an easy faith or an easy walk with God. But the reality here in this hard-hitting passage we will see is that James is going to use this phrase for us, that faith without works is dead. 
Maybe you've heard that statement before. Faith without works is dead. That when you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, that your life is not only made new, but it is forever changed. That we cast off the empty promises of this world and we say, I want to take up my cross and follow Jesus instead. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. I'm going to read to us James chapter 2. This is verses 14 through 26, and I'll be reading the English Standard Version this morning. God's word says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask for his guidance and blessing over his word this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active and powerful. And Father, we pray that like a knife, it might cut open our hearts in a way that would open us to, to trust you, to receive you, to believe you, and even to obey you this morning. Father, we remember that we can do none of those things outside of your goodness, your kindness, and your grace and mercy to us. And so we ask that you would pour it out on us this morning, that we might live it out to others that we meet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two ways this morning that God calls us to live a life of faith and works. Number one, we see in verses 14 through 19, the first part of James' address here, is God calls you into real faith in him that produces a life of good works. And there's a lot packed in that sentence. God calls you into real faith in him that produces a life of good works. He's going to express this in verses 14 through 19 with three, uh, basically, don't do that sort of statements. The, the first thing that he tells us is don't be a lazy and selfish church. He says that in verses 14 through 17. He begins by asking uh, two rhetorical questions. Right? He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? The answer, nothing. And he says, can that faith save him? The answer, no. In, in the scenario that he gives us, he says, imagine our brother or sister, someone you know personally, and, and put it here, right? Someone in your church that you know personally today walks up to you and you can see that their clothes are an absolute mess. They are in desperate need of new clothes. And they tell you directly, um, we don't know where we're going to lunch today. We have run out of food. We have nothing to eat today. And you say, listen, man, 
Have a great day. Uh, we got to beat the Baptists to our reservation at Texas Longhorn. We're out. That is what James is talking about. And so with that disgust, he is saying that that Christianity is worthless. And he says then, are you actually a Christian? If that is the way that you carry your life, no, is his answer. And he says very clearly in verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. John writes it this way in 1 John chapter 3, and this is a verse that we'll keep coming back to. He says, if anyone has the world's goods, you have stuff, and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, I am grateful for the ways that I have seen many of you love just even one another as well as people in our city, even recently. Uh, this week, the air conditioner in our little office uh, broke Monday morning, and uh, Eric Hughes dropped everything that he was doing and helped us rip out the ceiling where the, uh, the AC was pouring water onto the floor, just dropped everything to help us out. Um, I saw on Facebook earlier this week, uh, our sister church, our mother church, Covenant, uh, was mentioning that there was somebody in the area who their AC had gone out, um, and they were living in a hot house, and they, and they were looking for someone else to, um, to give them a place to stay maybe for the night. And Ben Bazelli jumped in there, many of you know Ben, and I said, I'll just buy them a new AC. And they put a new AC in so that they could stay there in that house. Um, I will embarrass him and he won't appreciate it, but uh, Trent Bay, uh, many of you may know, he literally gave up one of his kidneys two weeks ago so that somebody, one of his friends, could live. Um, it is that kind of putting others first that, that we, in some small way, follow after Jesus, who has given up everything for us. And I see us living that out, and it makes me grateful, and I say, let's continue to add works to our faith the way that James here is describing. The next thing he says in his list of don'ts is don't separate faith from works. Don't separate out your faith from your works. James here gives us an imaginary objector who basically says, well, pick one. You know, you have faith, I have works, or, or I have works and you have faith. Can't we both just be Christians with our own little thing? And James' answer very clearly is no. You must keep them together. James, in fact, is teaching us that the faith that this objector claims to have that's lacking in works is no faith at all. Because James says the evidence of real and genuine faith in your life is that good works come out of them. Faith and works are inseparable. Jesus teaches the same reality in the book of Matthew. He gives us, among many parables, the parable of the sower. This is in Matthew chapter 13, and he describes the word of God being scattered as seed among many hearts, and he says that uh, those who hear it but do nothing about it, those who hear God's word and don't respond, are those where the, so the seed fell on hard or rocky or, or weed-filled soil. But then in Matthew 13, 23, he says this, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Jesus says it's not just empty words, but it is works that accompany faith. And he says it is works that flow out of a personal faith relationship with him. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So it's not just enough even to do work. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The third don't that James gives us up front here finally is he says, don't think that head knowledge of God will save you. He says that in verse 19. He's saying here that simply believing that God exists, like most of our culture would still agree to, simply believing that God exists is not real faith. James gives us this example. He says, you believe that God is one. He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five that we looked at last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. He says, great, you understand that we are monotheists and not polytheists, that's wonderful, but even the demons believe this. But they shudder in their rebellion and their hatred of God. Uh, James is saying demons are not atheists. And that's an interesting thing to think about. Demons are not atheists. Demons have faith. They know that God is real, but their works of evil show that their faith is not real faith, that their head knowledge is not genuine faith. It's just that. It's head knowledge. It's awareness that God exists. So in all humility, I say to you this morning, understand that simply believing that God exists or simply being a good moral person because you believe that God exists, or or praying during a national tragedy, none of those things in themselves are a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They are head knowledge alone. How do we understand the difference between this head knowledge versus real and genuine faith? When I was in college my sophomore year, we took a, a group of guys and gals, and we drove up to Virginia to do some rock climbing. And I'm not talking about the uh, the auto belay inside an air-conditioned gym type of rock climbing. I'm talking about like a real mountain with like real rocks and stuff. And um, so we get out there, and this is a small mountain. Don't be that impressed. But it was like real rock climbing. And I'm out there, and I'm looking and going, okay, so death is an actual possibility here in this type of, of rock climbing. Uh, and we had this guy who was the boyfriend of one of the girls on our trip. And he says, oh, listen, I will, do, I will be your belay. I'll be the guy who holds the rope so you don't fall and die. I'm certified. Okay. Um, I didn't know this kid from Adam. And uh, he's, he is the boyfriend of the girl. And uh, in my infinite wisdom, I said, okay, sure, yeah. So we all take our turns climbing down. Obviously, I'm standing here to tell you the story. So you, you kind of know how it turns out. But my point is this. When I got over the edge of the rock and there's that moment as you're lowering down and you're now horizontal instead of vertical and instead of ground being underneath you, oxygen is underneath you and the ground is 100 feet below. At that point, my faith was real. Standing on the side of the mountain saying, yeah, I trust this guy was not real faith. That was intellectual head knowledge. That was mental assent. But when I got on the rope and I lowered back, I said, I am trusting this kid with my life. That is the difference between head knowledge and saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand, though, too, the Bible is not anti-knowledge. The Bible is not anti-theology. It is not anti-truth, certainly. God invites the whole person, head and heart, to know and follow him. See, because to know God is not just to know about God, but to know him personally in trust and in faith.
faith tells you that your hungry friend ought to be cared for rather than saying, shove off. Faith says that there is no such thing as faith separated from works, but rather our works flow out of our faith. And faith says that head knowledge is not enough, but rather all of my heart is given to Jesus in a saving relationship. Because a heart that is changed by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, by his grace and mercy, will inevitably respond with obedience. Secondly, James wants to continue to walk us through this argument. And so verses 20 through 26, he gives us our second reality. God's gift of salvation is by his grace alone, received by our faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Again, a lot of words, because we want to be precise about what we're saying here. God's gift of salvation is by his grace alone, received by our faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. If you're impressed with that sentence, uh, I didn't write it, but it is, a, it is a helpful way to be able to summarize how we understand what James is teaching here as a part of the whole of Scripture. In verse 20, James asks another question. He says, do you want to see that faith apart from works is useless? And he's going to answer it by giving us essentially two very brief biblical case studies from the Old Testament to help us understand what he is teaching these New Testament people. So case study number one, of course, is Abraham, and we get that in verses 21 through 24. And he opens by saying this. James writes, was not Abraham justified by works when he offered up his son on the altar? Now, we read this passage, and and many of us will read this passage and immediately lose our minds. Why? Well, I can think of at least two reasons that we read this and we go, whoa, hold on, wait a second. First, because he is re- he's referring us back to Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac. And Abraham is commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac. And so we, we of course, go, wait a second. Doesn't pass the, sm- the, the sniff test. Isn't human sacrifice like murder and stuff? And we're not supposed to, that's bad, right? Well, yes. Yes, uh, it is bad. It is wrong. We should not murder our children, lest we be confused. But be clear, this was God's idea that we should not murder our children long before it was ever our idea. So what is going on here? In Genesis 22, we have a beautiful passage that I am not going to preach a whole separate sermon on, but just understand that it is, the Bible says that God was testing Abraham. He was testing Abraham's faith and his obedience. And we are told clearly in Genesis 22 that God had planned and provided a lamb that would substitute in Isaac's place and did substitute in Isaac's place. Beautiful picture of the gospel here back in Genesis 22. And further, that Abraham believed that God would provide a way in some form. He didn't know how, but he trusted that God was going to save his only son, Isaac. Uh, We know this for two reasons. Look at Genesis chapter 22 and verse five. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy, plural, will go over there and worship and come again to you. All plural verbs. He is saying to these other people, listen, me and my son Isaac are going to go up there to the mountain, and then me and my son Isaac are going to come back. 
And in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, that we refer to often as the hall of faith, it says this of Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him, that is Isaac, from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham is trusting God in this situation. Now, the second and and more pertinent reasons that we might immediately lose our minds when we read this verse is the Bible just said Abraham was justified by works. Well, hold on a second. I thought that salvation was by grace alone. It is. I thought that we were justified from our sins by grace alone. You are. I thought no amount of good works can save us. Right again. So what is going on here? First of all, notice James doesn't say Abraham was saved by his works. It says he was justified by them. What James is saying is that Abraham proved, demonstrated his genuine faith by his works of obedience. Abraham had faith that God would keep his promise that Isaac would survive this situation. And Abraham, in being tested of his faith, demonstrated that his faith was real. It was genuine. Now let's move over to case study number two, which is Rahab. And we see that in verses 25 and 26. Rahab is the polar opposite of Abraham. One is a prostitute. One is a patriarch. One is a Gentile woman who is outside the covenant. One is a Jewish man with whom God established the covenant with all of Israel. And yet, They both were counted righteous by God's grace. And they both demonstrated acts of faith and obedience. Rahab lives in a totally other world. Rahab lives in wicked and evil Jericho at the time when Moses and Israel were entering the promised land. And she had heard the rumors that there was one true God and that his people were on the move. Look at the book of Joshua chapter two. This is verse nine and 11, and this is Rahab speaking. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. She's talking to these Israelite spies. For the Lord, your God, he is God, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So Rahab had faith in God. And what was the result? She did stuff with it. There were actions or works of obedience that flowed out of her young but genuine faith. Hebrews chapter 11, again, the the hall of faith identifies Rahab as another member of faith. It says, by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab's proof of her real faith was protecting the Israelite spies who were sent in by God. And so James in his commentary on both of them says faith was active along with works. Faith was completed by works. So again, the inevitable result of a life saved by God's grace results in obedience. So if you want to know, if you are a Christian, the formula simply is this. Have you asked Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior and forgive you of your sins? And is there now 
obedience flowing out of your life because Jesus has made you new. That is what James is showing us here. So as we let the weight of that sink in, I ask the question again, is James teaching us salvation by works? Is James teaching us that we must earn our salvation? No, absolutely not. James is calling believers, yes, to talk the talk of faith in Christ. He is calling us to walk the walk of faith in Christ, to live out the way that we see Jesus live in the New Testament, but the foundation is not our perfectibility as if somehow we could actually accomplish that. The foundation of our obedience is the grace and mercy of God found in the gospel in the scriptures. That is how we come to him. In verse 23, it says this, Abraham believed God and it was counted or many translations will say credited to him as righteousness. This is important. James is quoting God's promise of grace in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Genesis 15 took place 30 years before Genesis 22 and the Isaac episode. So first comes this promise of credited righteousness. Look back at Genesis with me. This is Genesis 15. I'll pick up verse five and verse six. And he, that is God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. God is making a covenant promise to Abraham. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. Do you know that this is the first time in the entire Bible that the word believe shows up in scripture? Genesis 15 and verse 6, Abraham believed, put his faith, put his trust in God. That was the first move that Abraham took, was faith, was belief. What kind of works had Abraham accomplished to that point? Zero. Zilch, not a nothing. Abraham is living the party life of a reprobate sinner and God comes to him in mercy. See, humanity, all of us outside of Christ are dead spiritually in our trespasses and sins. Kent Hughes says, attempting a work salvation is like putting makeup on a corpse. It does not work. In Genesis 15, God makes a covenant promise with Abraham, that by grace alone, Abraham would experience God as his God, and that same promise was extended to the generations that would follow him as well. This is the gospel in the Old Testament, in the very first book of the Bible. And Paul in the New Testament goes at length in Romans chapter 4 and in Galatians chapter 3 to make sure that we understand that what happened there in Genesis 15 was an act of God's grace alone, that this gift, this credit of righteousness, it was credited into Abraham's account. He did nothing to earn it. And it was received by Abraham by faith alone. So it is with every single person who comes to faith in Christ. Not only is it a free gift, but James adds that that the creator of the universe called Abraham his friend. 
that you and I are not simply invited to be justified before God, which we desperately need and must have, but that God calls you his friend, that through the mercies of Christ that you can be a friend with God. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is by God's grace alone, and it is received through faith alone. Still not convinced? Check out a few scriptures here. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 28, speaking specifically about salvation. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 3, 28. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So is the message here of Paul in the New Testament irreconcilable with the message of James here in the New Testament? And the answer is a resounding no. So how then do we resolve what seems to be an apparent contradiction or a paradox between Paul and James? Maybe one's just not scripture. Both 100% the inspired word of God. James, understand, the author James would be horrified for anyone to read his letter and think or come away with the idea that salvation isn't entirely an act of God's free and sovereign grace to sinful people who can't earn it and don't deserve it, but by his grace, he gives it lavishly. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, explains it to us this way, and I find this helpful. Paul's teaching about faith and works focuses on the time before conversion, and James focuses is after conversion. Paul is talking about how we come to Christ. James is talking about how we live in Christ, in other words. Douglas Moo writes this, Paul denies any effectiveness of pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Paul was fighting against tradition which promoted a false works salvation. I can save myself. James was fighting against a light faith, easy church, which minimized the necessity of works after coming to Christ. Francis Gensch puts it this way, Paul is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. James is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. The gospel is this. Hear from God himself in the book of Romans chapter 10. The Bible says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It's the promise of grace in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do not think, well, I prayed a prayer one time, or I came forward at an invitation one time, or I got baptized this one time, or I know a particular set of theological facts, ergo, therefore I must be saved. Understand that God's gift is a gift of free grace, that the message is trust in Jesus Christ, as your personal Lord and Savior, the salvation that he has offered is made available to you. Believe that Jesus really died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and it cost him 
everything so that it would cost you nothing. That his perfect good works substituted for your filthy rags of righteousness and only out of thankfulness to God's grace do we seek to live to follow after Jesus. Let today be the day that you call upon Jesus as your Lord and Savior. God's grace alone is the cause and repentance to Jesus is the effect of real grace in our lives. I want to close by reading a quote to you. Many of you have heard of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Ransom loves Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So of course, I got to have a Dietrich quote if Ransom is here. Amen. There's that amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced, if you don't know about him, the ultimate life and death crisis uh, as a a Christian living in Adolf Hitler's Germany. Uh, He had to fight the infiltration of Nazi socialism into church doctrine. He had to fight for the lives of Jews and Christians and was executed by personal order of Hitler one month before the end of World War II. Before Dietrich Bonhoeffer passed away, he wrote many books. One of them is called The Cost of Discipleship. And in that, he seeks to show what following Christ really looks like. And he talks about costly grace and cheap grace. And he shows that the fatal error of the German church was that they substituted Christ's costly grace for a very humanistic, cheap grace. Listen to what he says, and then we'll pray together. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leave his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel, which must be sought again and again. The gift, which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son, Quoting 1 Corinthians, ye were bought at a price, and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God, to which we say, amen. Let's pray together.